1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or
2: sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi everyone, it's Anoush here. Westminster Reimagined is back with Season 4. In this series, we'll be taking you out of the studio to find out what young voters want, whether democracy is under threat, and we ask... Why don't politicians care about happiness? Join us each Monday to hear the latest episode of Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Or if you want to hear previous episodes, you can find them all on their own feed. Just search Westminster Reimagined on your podcast app.
3: Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Amanda.
2: In this episode of Westminster Reimagined, we'll be joined by Alex von Tunzelman, a historian, screenwriter and author, and Sir Ivan Rogers, former permanent representative of the UK to the European Union. In their careers, they've both reflected on how Britain is seen on the international stage and the way its role in the world has been changing. We asked them whether Britain is really great anymore and what it means for us and our politics if it's not. Now, Armando, what's the problem with this idea of Britain being so special? We talk a lot about British exceptionalism, particularly yeah. on the right of politics at the
3: moment. Yes. I think there's two things. The reason I wanted to, to discuss this, uh, you know, now that we're in the era of identity politics, what is, the, what is Britain's identity? Um, it's one of those strange countries I've always thought that doesn't even know what it's called. You know, are we the United Kingdom? Are we Great Britain? Are we Britain? We're not England. I can't I, you know I'm not English. Um and and it's become two two things really prompt this, two moments fr- from the past couple of months. One is the coronation. Yeah. Which was um entertaining, absorbing, but very odd. And I think as they started putting the screens around Charles there came that point where you thought, "Oh God, we haven't done this in seventy years, and nobody's bothered to check whether it makes any sense." <laughs> there was that, and the fact that the commentator actually started crying when a thousand troops moved off in unison at the start of the march—that that's what we do really well, apparently. So it then, made me start questioning: Well, what else do we do really well? What who who are we other than people who can do good pageantry? The other thing was Suella Braverman saying that we should be proud of our past. We should. Uh, we should be proud of the empire we had and that to question our past and our history is to somehow be patriotic and for me that raised all sorts of questions about what is patriotism is it not about is it not about a view we have of ourselves no is it not about coming to some agreement as to what we are as a contemporary nation rather than one that relies on its tradition and its past. And I think this is going to be an issue that's going to be raised more and more as we reach the election. It's part of the culture wars that I think they find useful to weaponize The fact that, you know, if you have a Union Jack, you vote Conservative, and if you're critical of anything in the UK, you must be left-wing. It's that, and I want to just explore that break that down a little bit and see how how more nuanced we can get in this approach to what we are as a land and what the definition of patriotism is, really.
2: Yes, because there was a lot of harking back, particularly in the Brexit campaigns and post-Brexit, to sort of this kind of mythical past, whether or not it was Britain as a mighty nation or whether or not it was Britain as the sort of underdog against its adversaries. So I remember Boris Johnson said the Chequers deal would be the first time since 1066 that our leaders would deliberately be acquiescing to a foreign power. Um, And Jacob Rees-Mogg compared Brexit to Magna Carta, the Great Reform Bill, Waterloo, Agincourt and Trafalgar in a speech. And then you have constant throwbacks in the Johnson um, premiership to Churchill and, of course, throwbacks to Thatcher as well in Liz Truss's premiership. She even tried to dress like her. And Oliver Dowden, now the Deputy Prime Minister, when he was chair of the Conservative party, he endorsed calls for a Margaret Thatcher Day saying she ended our national decline. So you have that harking back to this this um, sort of nostalgia, but then you also compare that to the doom and gloom that we have on the right as well. I mean, at the mm. National Conservative Conference, um, people like Suella Bravman and others on the, on the right were queuing up to decry
3: what Britain had become,
2: despite a, its 13 years of a, conservative rule. For a
3: group of people who claim that they love this country, they spend an awful lot of time <laughs> moaning about what's, <laughs> what's wrong with it. And it's not just the institutions, you know, it's the people, you know, they they have a go at, you know, train drivers, the civil service, lawyers.
2: The NHS, the BBC, all of these institutions that people in Britain are generally quite fond of.
3: Yes. And and actually, I find, you know, it is actually quite liberal to stand up for these institutions, you know, like the law, rather than to to attack lawyers who you disagree with as lefty. You know, Rishi Sunak wasn't really attacking lefty lawyers because it's not the lawyers in the end who make the decisions. If he takes that approach, he should be calling them, you know, lefty judges and lefty juries, you know, but that would get him into trouble. So anyway, let's unpack what was otherwise a kind of very binary simplistic approach to, to who we are as a nation.
2: And to do that, I'm so pleased that we're joined by two very special guests who have an understanding of how the UK is seen in the world. Alex von Tunzelman is a historian, screenwriter and author. She's written books about the history of Britain, including on the Suez Crisis and the British Raj, as well as the screenplay for the film Churchill. Her book, Indian Summer, The Secret History of the End of an Empire on the Fall of the British Empire and Indian Independence, is going to be made into a film.
3: And we're also joined by Sir Ivan Rogers, who was the permanent representative of the UK to the European Union from 2013 until his resignation in January 2017. And he's one of the key civil servants who was helping to negotiate Brexit, but after his resignation, became critical of the approach of the UK to the negotiations. So thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. First of all, I'll start with you, Sir Ivan. Uh, you, you said you were critical of the, or I said you were critical of the approach uh the uk i mean the other image that that i resonates with me is david davis doing the negotiations without a single solitary piece of paper in front of him were and the, on the eu team with stacks of documents in front of him. and i got it summed up for me that that idea um that certain politicians have that that you know it'll be fine we we are who we are because we're british We'll succeed. It's innate in our character. Um, um, people will be absolutely overwhelmed by how reasonable and wise we are, and will concede readily. What What were the frustrations that you felt uh, that that sort of led to your decision to to that you could no longer continue in in office as the as the ambassador to UK?
0: Well, I think the I think that. That image of David Davis, which you say will resonate, was probably a bit unfair on him because it was a classic photo t- opportunity trap, I think, that <laughs> uh, uh, he rather fell into. But yeah, it did reveal it did reveal something, um, um, including from the man himself and from others, that you know the exit process was all going to be terribly simple, and that the negotiation all... Uh, trade deals around the rest of the world would be simple. Indeed, when he started in office, he was telling me that, you know, all of these would be done and dusted by the time we left at the end of the Article 50 process in two years' time. Uh, and, of course, if you're, though, you know, in my position on the spot, you will, you're saying to people, actually, I think it's going to be pretty complex. The exit against here is just going to be pretty conflictual. There are very big problems here about the nature of the relationship post-Brexit. And the EU has a very clear view on uh, the parallelism as it sees it between the rights uh, that people want and the obligations that they're prepared to bear if they're so called third countries outside the European Union. And they'll apply that doctrine to you, just as they applied it to Norway, Switzerland, or indeed any other third country. And, of course, that's more, you know, it's quite a difficult message to get across to politicians. They don't really want to hear it. They think that Britain is indeed unique and special and that the EU must recognise that we're a different quality and character of beast from anybody yes, else. that's right. I, I, I just remember Liam Fox saying it
3: should be the easiest deal in the world to come to. and, it, and Yeah, and absolutely. We
0: still No, I got a lot of that from a lot of Cabinet ministers at the time in autumn of 2016 when Theresa May arrived. Yeah. In fairness to her, I don't think she did think it was straightforward. Um, uh, And she wasn't one of those saying, this is all going to be a cake. But there was an awful lot of sort of very cavalier talk that it was going to be eminently straightforward, that we replicate virtually all of the benefits that we had when we were in the single market, the customs union, even though we'd left it. And we'd be able to, you know, boldly stride off into the mid-Atlantic and have a plethora of trade deals with everywhere else on the planet, you know, the fastest growing regions of, of the earth or in Asia. And and therefore, there'd be virtually no downside from leaving. We'd get virtually all the same economic benefits as used to have from greater EU integration. Uh, and uh, we'd get many more upsides from greater trade liberalization and other things with the rest of the world. And this was always a pipe dream. I think some of the Brexiteers, in fairness, knew all a lot that this was all speeches, but many of them didn't. And there was a premium push on saying all of this would be straightforward. And obviously, people like me and the mandarins and, uh, no. and the lawyers and the treasury were making it all far too difficult. And the disentanglement process could be much more straightforward and, uh, and simple than I thought it was going to be. I wonder if our kind of political classes are,
3: are kind of. Um not used to detail maybe they this idea of you know the amateur like David Cameron saying he, he wants to be prime minister because he, he thought he could do a good job really that was his that was his fundamental philosophy behind his reason for that that idea that, that we don't need to bother with the detail because our kind of natural uh, enthusiasm and wisdom and intelligence gets us through and and yet we see the complexity of the the trade negotiations are such that you know at, at time of recording I think we've now just got the Australian a trade deal in place, which means we can export them the Beano, while they flood us with uh, their lamb. Um, is that, it, it, Alex, is that a characteristic that, that that actually limits you know our ability to project a much more positive and, and an efficient image abroad?
1: I mean, to an extent, yes. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about exceptionalism, because, of course, we've also heard a lot about American exceptionalism Mm. and so on, is that exceptionalism is not in and of itself at all exceptional. I mean, I think pretty much every nation has some form of belief that it is actually special and important and unique. And, you know, the interesting thing is that exceptionalism takes very different forms Mm. in different nations. Um, And yes, absolutely, you're right, the British one is very much kind of Around that, there's a funny combination um, of that sort of all-powerful, mighty and plucky underdog thing, yes. which you know, which actually are completely contradictory, but must simultaneously be believed. You know, so we stood alone um, against Germany in World War Two. But we were the mightiest empire the world had ever seen, you know. And of course, both of these things are not really reconcilable. um, But and yet they are both an inherent part of this sort of national myth that we build. And I think you absolutely see that when you look at those sort of negotiations. Well, why wouldn't everybody want to be great mates with Britain? Why wouldn't they want, you know, to give us everything? Um, You know, surely that that would just make logical sense, which, of course, doesn't really fly when you meet the wall of reality in the real world.
3: And Ivan, have you noticed since, since the time you, you, you left a change in perception from other countries towards Britain? Has Britain gone down in people's estimation?
0: Well, I think that was happening, um, you know, well before we left, really. I mean, what do, what do other people like and admire about Britain, certainly around kind of my excellent professional circuit and amongst diplomats, but I think not just amongst diplomats, to be honest, it goes a bit deeper than that. It's precisely some of those things that we're, you know, we're seeing the current government or uh, Johnson government, trust government in particular, but carrying on now decrying. I mean, they admire the kind of the rule of law, the judicial process, um, uh, moderate pragmatism, a genuine British skepticism, including about elements of the European project is often quite admired uh, elsewhere in the European Union, that that mildly skeptical temper uh, that we often brought to debates, uh, the capacity to ask the difficult questions which many of the smaller member states of the European Union feel disempowered or unable really to do, facing France, Germany, maybe some others. Um, so. Uh, that was what was admired about the U.K. system, our professionalism, our attention to detail, our rigour, uh, our approach to the law, the strength of our judicial system, the strength of our democracy. I mean, when I'm sitting around a table with a bunch of other, you know, 27 other ambassadors, I mean, the number of them who either had part of their own education in London or whose kids were uh, being educated or had been educated somewhere in the U.K., was enormous. There's a huge kind of wellspring of admiration for the UK, which doesn't just go back to the kind of, you know, the 1930s, 1940s standing up to Hitler. It's much more recent than that. I think the sense is that we'd become much more dogmatic, less pragmatic, and just frankly, less professional and less good at, at protecting and advancing our own national interests. And become much more ideologically phobic to the whole European project, rather than just sceptical about some of the some of the designs of the major continental European powers. So I think this I think this predates two thousand and sixteen. All where I could go back through my entire career and trace a path from a degree of admiration and respect for kind of British pragmatism and scepticism, which then I think dwindles certainly by the time I was working for David Cameron but then it obviously exacerbated post-referendum into the sense that there's just no negotiating with these people. They're living in a la land of their own. They've invented a sort of fantasy world which they think they can inhabit and they can only find out the hard way once the negotiation is over that the world outside is not going to be much more comfortable, probably going to be much less comfortable than the world inside. But that wasn't the atmosphere about the BRICS through most of my career with working, we've got to get to the European well, no, Europe. That's That's interesting. So I think that's something we discussed
3: before in a previous podcast about the trend in recent politics has been actually to go down a slightly un-British route.
2: You know, the things you listed there, the rule of law, the sort of, you know, respect for checks and balances, the scepticism, democratic norms, these are the kind of things, you know, with the, with the European Convention on Human Rights um, and potential breaches of international law and in some of the legislation that the Conservatives have attempted to pass post-Brexit, you know, these are the things that are being chipped away at, as well as the impartiality of the civil service and other institutions.
0: Are they short? Yeah, I don't think that shocks people. The ECHR thing is emblematic of that. I mean, the idea that the Brits, who were, you know, right at the outset, very key in in inaugurating this kind of institutional, institutionalization, internationalization of a kind of rights framework. And, you know, and this is Churchill and all the people around Churchill, a post war settlement. The Brits very prominent in delivering that post war settlement. It shocks people that the UK can be talking about resiling from international obligations and joining, you know, um pariah states really and leaving the ECHR. It shocks people that the conservative right kind of got to that state. It surprises people that British administrations can essentially boast about repudiating international legal obligations, you know, virtually us a sort of badge of honor and integrity to, first of all, negotiate trade, trade deals and treaties and then walk away from the bits that you don't like. I mean, that, that stuff... That stuff really surprises people because whatever people thought about the Brits, including Mm. conservative Brits, right through our membership in the European Union, they never thought the Brits operated like that. And I don't think previous generations of conservative politicians Mm. ever did operate like that.
3: And Alex, does that trend now to undermine a lot of the things that... we traditionally held as being British qualities, you know, the fair play, the the attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So this much more dogmatic approach to what Britain is, does that make it harder if you criticise aspects of Britain? Does it make, is there a pressure? is there a sense that you're being labelled unpatriotic?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of talk about that at the moment. And it's interesting to me that the kind of current generation that Sir Ivan's talking about and so on, are not the people who have direct memory of the Empire or World War II or any of these things. What they actually have is a generation or two removed. Mm. So the memory they have is constructed. It's actually kind of learned. And it's it's very shot through with fantasy about what that was like, not about the reality that actually people that, so I haven't talked about, who really built these kind of international agreements and the sort of post World War II settlement, you know were very aware of those realities. Actually, a lot of the time, small moments like the Suez crisis of unreality creeping in. But actually, there was a pretty high degree of awareness of Britain's place in the world changing, what was to be done about that, you know, the kind of getting, moving away from empire towards a different structure in the world and towards the EU. I mean, that was part of that movement. Um, and I think the kind of current generation of politicians are actually really quite culturally separate from that history. And so the way that they use that history is not actually looking at the nuanced reality of it. It's about a kind of patriotism test and it's about um, a sort of tribal signifier, right? That, you know, I believe Britain was great, so that's wonderful. You criticise Britain, so that's awful. But I mean, of course, from a historian's point of view, this is absurd, because we don't work in terms of a spectrum of good or bad. You know, we're not time travelling Santa Claus looking for who's been naughty and nice. We're trying to understand how and why things happen. So those kind of value judgments actually aren't even very interesting to me. You know, I'm interested in why the British Empire started and ended. I'm not very interested in telling you whether it's a thumbs up or thumbs down. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I found it really interesting. You said there's this contradiction between this idea of Britain as the plucky underdog sort of going out on its own and, you know, the might of uh, this former imperial power. And I I feel like that goes into an identity crisis that we're still in today. The sort of, you know, little Englander neurosis versus global Britain sort of fantasies Mm -hmm. of, you know, freeing ourselves from Europe and going forth into the world. I feel like that's still taking place today. And Ivan's written a bit about this as well. It's now feeding into this narrative that because Brexit's not really working and, you know, majority of people when you poll them don't really see many benefits from Brexit so far, it means it's sort of being betrayed by the very institutions that we were just talking about, as well as Europe itself. Um, And so is this just sort of, is this perpetual, this identity crisis? Because you can always find someone else to blame.
1: Yes, I mean, it's something that we've seen with other kind of ideological phenomena. I mean, quite famously, for instance, with, you know, with something like communism, when that has failed, what we've seen is lots of people saying, well, it wasn't done properly, you didn't do it right. You know, um, this wasn't true communism, you weren't true believers and all of this kind of stuff didn't probably we're now seeing that phenomenon very much work its way through the kind of ideological ranks of the Brexiteers of, you know, this isn't my Brexit. This wasn't done properly. I thought it would be this lovely thing. Farage
3: famously said Brexit has failed, Mm. uh, but it's the fault of the the British politicians now. Right.
1: It It can never just be that the idea was actually really pretty impossible to pull (laughs) off in any kind of reasonable way. Um, And a lot more complicated, as Sir Ivan indicated, than a lot of the people proposing it. Not all of them, but a lot of the people proposing it um, really accepted or or perhaps understood. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, we are now in this cycle and because it's now become, because it is ideological, it's, you know, and when things are ideological, they're a very emotional belief. They don't respond really to facts or they just take the facts and then they absorb them in an ideological manner that actually just reinforces the narrative. Mm-hmm. So the problem is it's very difficult then to just sort of, you know, we can see, as you say, from the evidence that actually if you poll people now, most of them are not happy with how this is going. They don't think it's working. So... That is a fact, but then a story must be found to justify that fact, such as well, it must have been sabotaged. This must have been done by somebody, you know, some blob in Westminster has done this because how is it possible um, otherwise that it could have happened? Couldn't just be a bad idea.
0: And I very much, I very much agree with that. And I have been worried about this for ages. I've been writing about it pretty much since I exited. I always feared that we would reach the kind of stab in the back syndrome um, and the, the belief that Brexit was a brilliant idea and a liberatory moment and a revolutionary moment, Uh, but the the, the uh, counter-revolution in some way beat it off or undermined it or sabotaged it. And I think it is quite dangerous for any country to get into a syndrome where the politics is dominated by a myth of stab in the back and a myth of establishing betrayal. And you're seeing that toxifying. I've always been worried by the extent to which this would toxify, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get as rapidly as possible to a post-Brexit settlement, where there could be an, a new equilibrium, where both remainers and leavers, uh, felt that they got sort of sufficient gains that you could live in a in a new post-Brexit world and 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 kind of reassemble a UK um, a UK majority in favour of a new settlement. The danger now is the right increasingly is developing this theme that. Um, it's all been sabotaged. Uh, the establishment, the judiciary, the treasury, yeah. the Bank of England, whoever oh. else, you know, the main institutions have not got behind the project, have never really believed in it, have spent their time uh, determined to undermine it. I mean, it was, I personally think that of this is nonsense, nearly all of it is nonsense, do the civil service and the treasury, but it's incredibly powerful doctrine. And the worry I have now really on the conservative side is, you know, how do you get away from that? There are signs, as you can see with the current Prime Minister in comparison with his predecessors, of a greater degree of pragmatism and a recognition that you need a uh, a workable relationship with your neighbours and your erstwhile trade partners. But we're still a long way off that being, you know, the mainstream view of the bulk of the base of the Conservative Party. Well, it's kind of baked in
3: now because, you know, Johnson, when he became Prime Minister, got rid of anyone in his party who, who disagreed with his approach to Brexit. So already you're narrowing the, for want of a better phrase, talent pool uh, from which you draw. But it means that that kind of dogmatic belief, Maoist belief in the correctness of Brexit, has become so dominant that even the left now are scared to... I mean, Keir Starmer is scared to say... uh, It failed. So when pushed, he will say, no, uh, what we now need to do is make Brexit work. He won't concede that the notion, the fact of Brexit is something that's demonstrably fallen apart and, and proven to be untrue.
0: Yeah, absolutely and i don't think he could go there politically i totally understand the kind of political calculation and that's why um you know the uh, the belief that you can't go back to free movement to people from within the european union uh means you can't rejoin a single market i don't think labor would rejoin or create a customs union either because you'd forfeit sovereignty over trade policy so they're faced with as you said the dilemma of saying we want a better settlement than the trade and cooperation agreement that was agreed under uh, under Boris Johnson, uh, but they've ruled out some of the you know some of the key items that would repair some of the um, the economic damage as they see it. Now I don't think look I'm to strike a more optimistic note. I think seven years on the the extent the extent of the delusion is becoming uh, a bit more you a know, bit more obvious, uh, including to a wider public. The, the extent to which there are sort of trade-offs and compromises that need to be made. And if you go full-fledged, untrammeled sovereignty, that way they quite damaging to your, to your economy and to your industrial basis is getting home to people. The other thing that's changed, obviously, is war. And war on the continent of Europe and Ukraine. The Brits there played a rather good role uh, in supporting Ukraine. And that's much admired, I think, still in the European Union and beyond. But it's also reminded people that there's a much bigger threat it reminded people here in the UK that there's a much bigger threat, but reminded the EU that there's a much bigger threat than Anglo Saxon perfidy or Brexit. So, this may bring the two sides closer together again because we now have, you know, common issues about war, hard security, internal security, energy security. Uh, we're facing the same dilemmas on climate change. It, it will start to dawn, I think, on a new generation of politicians, including on the conservative side, that the world isn't completely dominated by sundering your relations with your erstwhile closest trading partners. I just think that takes a long time to get that. I'm an optimist in the long term of the UK reviving a, a slightly different conception of its relationship with the continental European powers. Not that I believe that we will go back into the European Union, because I don't think we will, and I don't think the European Union will want us to. But I do think we'll end up with a radically different relationship from the very thin, very inadequate relationship that we got via this trade and corporation agreement.
3: And, and Alex, do you think the this, this concept of Brexit has even hijacked our idea of patriotism in that... I mean, Labour, I think, struggles with looking patriotic yeah. in that it kind of always buys into the right's view of patriotism, which is to wave a Union Jack and talk about how glorious our history was. They, they, they feel... Um, They feel slightly nervous of offering a different approach to patriotism, one about being critical in a supportive way about what the country is now. Do you find that they're still restricted in in how they take on that argument?
1: I mean, I find it quite frustrating because I think there is a lack of imagination about how to do that, actually, um, in the Labour Party and, you know, at the moment to kind of accept this framing of it that actually, you know, one mustn't criticise anything or, you know, that any opinion that isn't Britain was completely amazing is some sort of, you know, attack on the country is sort of ridiculous because actually one of the great strengths of British history is being able to have those kind of debates and actually to be, you know, to be critical is actually quite inherent in in British culture Um, and, and, you know, could be seen as a great strength and a great positive. Um, But I think there's a sort of, you know, there is a fear about framing it. And obviously, I think that's partly to do with the whole political landscape of the last few years. I mean, not to rehash absolutely everything, but Brexit was very much a sort of, you know, polarising but very much kind of framed around those sort of patriotic views. You also, of course, had Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of Labour, which, you know, which the right-wing press found very easy to portray as unpatriotic. Obviously, I know there's loads of different opinions on that, but certainly that's how oh, yes. it was easily <clears throat> characterised. And also in
3: Scotland, during the independence referendum debate, there was a perception among certain people, if you weren't going to vote for independence, you were unpatriotic.
1: And these devolution movements are part of, or independence movements um, as in Scotland are part of also that, of of actually kind of an unease about the whole concept of Britishness itself, which is, you know, which is complicated and quite difficult to deal with. And I mean, I definitely understand the Labour Party having some difficulty navigating that, but I think it's Absolutely vital that they do,
2: but it's also the opportunity to
3: come up with a, you know, exactly. a fresh approach to, you know, defining ourselves or how we define ourselves as a country. Well,
2: that is what Tony Blair did. I mean, he did an interview that I chaired for the New Statesman last year, and he talked about how his whole thing when he came in was to try and tell a positive national story about Britain, a different story to the one that had been told before. That its sort of finest hour was in the past. You know, when Churchill was battling the Nazis, and you know that was all behind us. He said his idea was, and I'm going to quote here. From the interview, take what I think are the enduring best qualities of Britain, open-mindedness, tolerance, innovation, and try to give Britain a different narrative that would allow it to think its best days are ahead of it rather than behind it. And and he said this sort of culminated in the Olympic bid and then the opening ceremony for those games, that's sort of seen as a sort of totemic sign of what... Um, a kind of more progressive patriotism can look like. But Labour doesn't seem quite confident enough to you know, make its own mark and tell its own version of that story at the moment.
1: I think it's a tricky thing and we've seen it a few times in the 20th century. I mean, it's easy, I think, to sort of say, you know, for goodness sake, the Olympic opening ceremony was like one tiny thing and we all stop obsessing about it. But if you look at, for instance, after Suez and when Britain really was kind of down in the dumps, the swinging 60s were such an important cultural moment to recreate British identity. You know, And and around the Beatles, around music, around a much younger generation, it was called the Youthquake at the time, you know, was actually a way of reinventing Britain as a quite different Mm -hmm. image from what had gone before in the 50s. And I mean, Tony Blair sort of managed a bit, he he had Britpop, which I'm afraid my opinion was not quite the Beatles. But anyway, you know, (laughs) but nonetheless did allow similarly for a sort of, for a sense of youth and innovation. Um, And again, I think that's something that, you know, we've had... Again, you know, culturally, the history of Britain is kind of amazing. It does reinvent itself, and in a global way, in an incredible multicultural, interesting way in these generations. And that's something I think politicians
2: could look at, you know, when they're talking about patriotism. Well, that's something I wanted to ask as well because we've talked a lot about the right and how, while there's this sort of populist nostalgia for Brit- for the Britain's past, there's also a lot of doom and gloom about Britain's institutions in the rhetoric that we get at the moment. But what about the left? You know, lots of Remain-minded liberals do kind of wallow in this. You know, narrative of declineism. I'm, I'm sure we've been d- guilty of it on this podcast a few times, saying that ev- nothing's working and sort of Britain's not important anymore. If it
3: was a wallow, it was an agonised wallow, yeah, an agonised, you know, yes, you know, yes, a
2: distressed, a distressed cry, distressed. yes. yes. Um, like but you a know, big is that yeah. we're kind
3: of like emitting these signals? What do we <laughs> yeah. do? Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, is that as much of a sort of mythical story that they're telling themselves as the kind of rule Britannia kind of, you know, up yours kind of patriotism
3: that you get from the yeah, right I find that has, has it actually the whole business of patriotism and loyalty you get slight, subtly but um increasingly obviously become elided with the whole question about immigration in that part of our brexit you know dividend was control of the borders and now we're being challenged not just by europe but by people coming in and and re, and reframing the whole idea of immigration as something that is That that is something that that undermines the UK rather than something which traditionally we've benefited from.
0: uh, I mean, it seems to me the story there, even on the right, is a bit more equivocal. If you look at what's happened, um, look at what they've done as opposed to what they've said. The rhetoric has got increasingly poisonous and unpleasant, it seems to me, uh, above all the the asylum debate and the small boats debate. But if you look at legal migration flows... Uh, okay, then you free movement to people, and you've seen a radical decline in the numbers coming from the EU as a consequence, and so that's a problem with our relations with the EU going forward if you want to repair those via a different trade framework. But if you look at what this government has done, and of course, that's now causing the agony on the right with Suella Bravo and others, it's actually quite a liberal open migration policy, probably more liberal and open than most of the European Union has. Um, and that's quite striking, you know, quite relaxed in a way that you wouldn't have expected from the people who sold to the public in 2015, 16, the, the borders. And that's, of course, what chlorology is now trying to exploit. Say, if I'd been in charge, uh, net migration would have fallen to 50,000 as opposed to the 600,000 that you've got now. But what, what Johnson & Trust actually did in office, and Sunak is continuing in office, is quite a liberal migration policy because, frankly, the economy falls over without
3: the interesting point you make there is, that is the division between the rhetoric and, and the action. So they might be exploring a, a, a much more liberal than we imagined immigration policy. But the language that's being used, especially by Suella Braverman, is much more hostile and much more anti-immigration. And that's the problem. It, it makes it harder, I think, for anyone in the centre and the left. They have to think twice about how they frame promotion of the idea of immigration.
0: No, I absolutely agree. And I think it is going to be a core problem at the next election. I expect a lot of a lot of attacks on Labour immigration policy, a lot of accusations that they want to return to free movement and to the single market by the back door. All of this stuff I think will come back. I do, you know, as I say, the optimist in me thinks although Brexit and the manifestations of Brexit and the consequences will figure in the next election, it will get increasingly boring for a public in the late 2020s and 2030s We're obsess about Something that is well in the past and where there is no realistic prospect of Britain, in my view, seeking to rejoin, or of the 27 wanting to reopen negotiations on accession by the Brits. So in the, in the end, Brexit moves into into the rearview mirror and you get onto a kind of, but is our fundamental relationship with our ex-European union partners um, in the right place or not? And there, the answer is obviously not. Now, can you then develop a more um, uh, relaxed, well, relaxed maybe the wrong word, but a different view of British identity which accommodates um, European elements? After all, most of our closest friends and allies and democratic allies on the planet live quite near to us. And we're closer to a European social-democrat uh, identity in many ways than we are to an American identity. Our politicians often feel they want to be closer to an American identity. I don't think that's where the bulk of the British public is. So over time, can you use that to develop a different conception of British identity, which co- accommodates lots of European elements in it without a European Union membership? Yeah, I suspect you can, but I think it's going to be a little, a little painful. Talk. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you, any sense of optimism?
3: I mean Alex do you find that the uh, the the younger generations have a completely different view of what British identity is because i suppose we grow. i mean look you know Anush and i are both from at least one of our, your your father came from uh, no, no, but it was armenian all yeah. right was armenian right? my father came from uh, italy um, i always think the the true test of what makes britain is if you if you see the crowds that soar outside buckingham palace when there's a balcony you and you just took a kind of screen grab of, of a cross-section of that crowd. It's a fairly diverse, enthusiastic, patriotic, you know, there's no left, right. There's no question of, you know, the percentage of ethnicity. It's a really good cross-section who are being supportive of something going on in this country. And, and that, I think, is a, it sits much more comfortably with how, I think, the younger generation feels. And maybe the rhetoric that Sir Ivan was talking about, we've been talking about, the, the harsher rhetoric, is something that actually rings a bit hollow.
1: I mean, I think so, you know, in terms of general trends, and obviously there's exceptions, but I do think the younger generations are a lot more chilled out about this. But on the other hand, I also don't think that's completely new phenomenon. I mean, if you look back at when British uh, citizenship was effectively created, 1948, British Nationality Act, um, it was for all citizens of UK and the colonies. So British nationality was established um, as a completely multicultural project brought in. And all those people had full rights of free movement at that stage. Um, should they wish to move to London, they could. Some did, you know, and, and this was actually a very multicultural project. And so was the Commonwealth, at least in its early years. Um, And the kind of, you know, it was an attempt to do some sort of multicultural project. So again, this isn't some necessarily some kind of radical new youth movement. There has always been an element of that in British identity and British history. It's just that what you had during kind of the 50s, 60s, 70s, so on, um, up till now, is kind of a hardening of rhetoric against that kind of multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. On another side, but it did pre-exist; you know, it yeah. was there before. And yes, I do think kind mean, of you know obviously what we're seeing a younger generation, many of you know, many of us like you, like me, um, you know, are kind of the children of immigrants have kind of come through a kind of different route and are, are pretty relaxed actually about the fact that yeah. that Britain might be more of a multicultural. Again, that might be a great strength. Of it is that it always has been able to incorporate and change and adapt to these kind of new influences, and that can be very refreshing for a country.
3: I'm not being rude here. I'm taking out my mobile phone, but only to read something out because I came across this um, quote from a people, Jacob Rees-Mogg. It was quoted by uh, the Guardian journalist Charlotte Edwards, and it was from an unused bit of an interview that she had done with Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I think, I think she said uh, 2016 rees said he didn't believe broadly that people come to Britain for benefits. Quote, and I don't like this view of immigrants. If you meet people that come from foreign countries, they've actually done something really rather remarkable. They've left their friends and family, come to a country where they often don't speak the language, not because they're benefit scroungers, but because they want to make a better life. And that's rather a noble thing to do, isn't it? But you wouldn't, hear, you wouldn't get him saying that now. No. even if he believes it, because of the the, the climate that his party operates. Okay,
2: and that's a very positive story about Britain, like you were saying, Alex. Yeah. It could be a real boon. I mean, it, it struck me from this conversation. I've been thinking about it. Um, you know, is it is it the immigrants who are coming here? And at the moment, we're recording at a time of record net migration. Yeah. Is it that they're the only ones who think Britain is great anymore? (laughs) I mean, it's quite a vote of confidence. You know, it's
1: a lot that you're giving up to move across the world in any big way. And there's always push and pull factors to that. But yeah, we should be very worried if people don't want to come here. I mean, that would be really (laughs) alarming.
3: And yet the talk still is of not opening up jobs to them, but training UK residents to to do the job. So aren't we aren't we missing out on an enormous talented enthusiastic resource literally on our doorstep? So
2: that's another thing. Because the flip side to this um, sort of hostility towards immigration is um, a sort of chiding of Brits, isn't there? I mean, Liz Truss almost explicitly said this a few times um, in her in her political career so far that sort of British workers aren't working hard enough, and we should be more like Chinese workers. Um, Suella Braverman recently said, you know. Rich should come out and be fruit pickers and butchers and lorry drivers. You know, the underlying message there is, you know, come on, you know, get... (laughs) Get off your backside to yeah, get into and jobs. At the that same you don't
1: time, work. they say they want like a high tech economy full of services. I mean, so you know what is one supposed to do
2: exactly to
1: please this government? You know, and, and there's so many contradictions in that. And then, of course, when you look at industries that actually are very successful, such as the entertainment industry, this country is stratospherically successful. They don't support it. So yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of contradictions I've, in that. I've banged on about that for decades
3: now. <laughs> <laughs> one of our greatest industries.
0: But I th- I think that. I mean, it's interesting that they've sort of developed a critique of European Union membership and single market membership and free movement of people, as if that sort of undermined the moral fiber and contributed to undermining the moral fiber of young Brits and uh, and and above all uh, the bottom quartile, or bottom third, where let's let's face it, we've had a very bad record on educational attainment at the bottom at the bottom quarter or bottom bottom third of our population for probably upward of a century. I mean, I've had more government initiatives or lived through more government initiatives about apprenticeships and uh, uh, that I've had hot dinners, I think, and uh, lots of obsession in the treasury and beyond about what is the weakness of our educational tail. So this perception, rightly, that we've got very strong tertiary education, very strong private schools, we're an exporter of tertiary education, we're enormously attractive in terms of our universities, highly competitive by European standards on universities as well, but had this long tail run to a team. But it is this curious thing that, you know, the right in particular wants to focus and say, accuse everybody else of being declinist and defeatist. But as you say, and as Alex has been saying, um, actually, a hell of a lot of the declinism and defeatism and sense that the nation has lost its moral fiber and lost its bearings and it has been undermined and is going in the wrong direction and has been undermined by, you know, 30 years of socialist misrule. And um, it's all actually coming from there a deep discontent with the country as it currently is, you know, and a whole liberal country, a more diverse country, uh, which, uh, you know, for all our many weaknesses of diversity and integration and multiculturalism, you know, I've lived in Belgium, I've lived in France, I've lived in Germany, albeit not for very long periods, except in Belgium when I was obviously working there. But um, I think you could make a, a reputable argument that over the last 30 or 40 years, we probably made more progress than most other European democracies in the direction of genuine diversity, genuine multiculturalism. Now, you're seeing some signs of that in, in Germany, for example, with uh, Turkish integration, above bubble around Berlin, but much wider in the country, and moving away from a sort of gastarbeiter model to a very different conception of integration into the German economy, and a good thing too, in my view. I think you could argue that the UK probably made more progress than many other continental European countries over the last year. But you still experience this enormous discontent on the right about. This has all failed and is a disastrous multicultural venture.
3: We as a country are actually increasingly comfortable and, and welcoming, really, with diversity and I mean, even the word diversity sounds like it's some kind of label, and it's not that. It's, we're just relaxed about who we are. But yet it's this increasingly small but increasingly loud group of people who, who have, have hijacked the conversation with these much more kind of absolute and, and strident terms. And, and that's the worry. And the, the other worry in practical levels with if we go down the road of Brexit is, has always been a success, we mustn't challenge it, we must go our separate way. is we end up, you, and as you mentioned Boris Johnson talking about vassal state, we might end up as a vassal state of America if mm-hmm. we're not careful, because we won't have anyone else.
0: Well, just on that thing, of course, many of the real Brexiteers wanted to do precisely that. And the real purpose of the exercise was to, to divorce ourselves politically from the European Union. Let's say they were developing a political, and fiscal, monetary union. We wanted out of it, and essentially to join the Americans. I don't think they fully understood the a- economic consequences of joining the Americans, or just how powerless a voice we would be if we were in the American orbit and in um, in NAFTA or the NAFTA replacement. But nevertheless, there is that trend in Brexit's. There was the other trend, which was Mid Atlantic. Deregulated ultra with with uh, trade deals with everybody on the planet—the David Davis kind of vision. All of this would be done very rapidly. We'd have negotiations with the Chinese, uh, with the Indians, with the Americans, and we would be a sort of Singapore in the middle of the Atlantic, deregulated, smaller state, a lower taxes, reaping competitive advantage compared with the kind of slurring chic bear broth of the European Union. So those visions not fully aligned either, although obviously uh, America is a lower tax, on um, smaller state uh, than the, uh, the bulk of the EU. I think the problem now, and this is a big problem for Labour as we look forward, is we're not living in the world, that the Brexiteers really advanced as their fantasy world in 2015, 16. That's partly Ukraine. That's partly the growing conflict between the US and China of a sense that we're back to a kind of geostrategic world where power counts. And where if you're outside any trade block, and we're outside the EU, we're outside the US, we're very unlikely to get a trade deal with Biden's US. I'm not sure about Trump's, maybe for geostrategic reasons, if Trump came back. The difficulty of it is it's a cold world. So you're suddenly discovering that you're in massive industrial subsidies with blocks who've got much more fiscal firepower to res- spend on those subsidies. And so I think what Labour will face if it gets into power in 18 months' time is a world where, you know, there is considerable uh, green subsidies war, but going well beyond green subsidies, considerable focus on securing your supply chains, making them more resilient uh, on national security grounds but all of this will be done in rather hermetically sealed blocks and we're not in any of the blocks. And so this idea of Britain striding free uh, uh, in mid-Atlantic so it doesn't really look like well, the world of the mid-2020s. And so getting to a conceptual: of what is an economic policy fit for Brexit, you know, if, we're, if you're unable to reverse Brexit, you're talking the language about making Brexit work, you're not able to join a single market and customs union, you're not able to join a substitute race because you don't have fiscal firepower, you know, where are you, is a really difficult set of questions.
3: It's a move that that would work if we were in the 19th century, but, but we're not.
1: Sitting in the mid-Atlantic, not waving, but drowning, I feel, <laughs> at
3: this point. Well, on that troublesome note, uh, thank you very much, uh, both Sir Ivan and uh, and Alex, for, for coming in. And, and uh, we could have unpicked that for hours. I mean, there's so much to chew on there. But thank you so much.
2: So that was really interesting. I thought when we were asking, is Britain great, we were going to talk about our sort of declining role in the world. But actually, I think we concluded that there is a better story to tell about Britain. It's just our politicians are... Too scared, or, that's, that's, or that's
3: my big takeaway from that conversation. Is that there is this disconnect between the rhetoric being used and actually what it is we're doing as a country, and, and even as a government. I suppose it's much more liberal and inclusive on the ground, but you know, and the media that supports the government at the moment, as well as politicians like Suella Braverman, are promoting a different uh, approach to it—a a much more negative, strident, yeah. um, damaging. And as you as you kept saying, Anoush, they're the ones that's most critical of Britain.
2: Yeah, I mean, their view of Britain, despite their party having been in power for the past 13 years, is a very negative one. And actually one that, like you said, doesn't really tend to resonate with your sort of average casual observer, who is relatively comfortable with the kind of things that you get, yeah. you know, major cabinet
3: ministers now railing against. Yeah, and, and so that was the positive. I mean, the, the, the pessimistic uh, take from it was, of course what are we going to do now that we're... You know, that, that chilling uh, uh, that chilling summary that Ivan gave of Britain mm-hmm. being alone when there are these enormous trading blocks now that we have to compute. If only there was some nearby trading block that we could somehow be part of that would allow us to do that thing we do very well, the free movement of people, the welcoming to our shores of people with talent and enthusiasm and positivity. If only there was some way we could come up with some kind of, I don't know, some kind of European-wide community of What would economies. you call it? I, well, I think, you know, <laughs> the Grand European Alliance, the... Uh, the um, the axis of aspiration, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> unicorn Europe, um, something. But of course, there isn't anything like that. So we have to uh, just get by ourselves. So that's that's the pessimistic side. Um, I imagine, I kind of agree. I mean, Ivan said it would take some time. But I imagine, uh, depending on how the next election goes, that there will be a, a subtler and then increasingly non-subtle <laughs> approach to re-engaging with Europe. Yes in a kind of, hey, can't we come up with another another concept, like the greater economic partnership that, well. <laughs> that Britain can join so that we can join without joining, if you see what I mean, that yes, we can exactly. do a kind of sleight of hand.
2: Yeah, and given Keir Starmer's one of his main mm. aims is to get us having the fastest growing economy in the G7, yes. the only short route to that really is increasing immigration and having a closer relationship with Europe.
3: <laughs> and, of course, the final thing is frustration that actually... He can't, he won't say that.
2: No, no. And that's that's what, you know, I mean, that's why it will be one of the fault lines in the next election, despite the fact that people might get bored of it, um, I think, as Ivan pointed out, quite rightly. I think that will be one of the things that the Conservatives will try and use to cast doubt in voters' minds about what a Labour government could bring.
3: Yes, and maybe he's, um, maybe he's aware of the, the red wall and not wanting to. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe, you know, this time next year, if the red wall, the opinion polls are saying the red wall's, concede as equally as anyone else that Brexit just hasn't worked. Maybe he'll feel a bit more uh, relaxed about being a bit more vocally pro-European.
2: You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a bonus series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. Join us for the next episode of Westminster Reimagined, where Armando and I speak to a group of 18-year-olds about their attitudes towards politics and voting for the first time in the upcoming general election. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley. Our executive producer is Chris Stone.